And then we're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1. If you just go there, because that's a big book. A little easier to find. And when you get to Hebrews chapter 1, turn back one page. And you will see a little book called Philemon. Okay? Uh, One writer I was... uh, reading yesterday said that there are two postcards in the New Testament, the book of Jude and the book of Philemon, two books that contain only one chapter. So this morning, as kind of a wrap-up to this idea of generous justice that we've been talking about and the place of the church and in loving others, giving people what they don't deserve, helping to meet needs, I wanted to turn to this little book that is often ignored, not, not very often is it preached. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it deals with a difficult topic, and that is the topic of slavery. The broader truth that the book deals with is the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that's the aspect of the book that we're going to focus our attention on this morning. How many of you have ever uh, split wood? Raise your hand if you split wood, okay? Wood heats you when you split it, wood heats you when you burn it, right? It's it's got that going on. I remember as a little kid... uh, we burned wood in our house for heat, and uh, I remember taking a little wedge with a, a, a you know, kind of narrow, thin point on the very edge of it, and uh, taking a sledgehammer and driving that little, thin wedge into a large log. And if it was the right kind of wood, you could take that little, narrow tip of that wedge, and as you would start to drive that in, it would accomplish something amazing. It would actually take a rather large log and split it in half. It would just literally have that log driving the two pieces apart. That wedge is a picture of what sin does in our lives, especially when it is not dealt with and when it's not resolved. Sin will bring devastating effects in our lives. Sin drives apart friendships, sin destroys marriages. It puts animosity between family members and fellow workers and schoolmates as it works its way slowly but very surely through relationships. This morning, I think we could say that many of us in various areas of our life are probably dealing with small and big struggles, with big sins and little sins that are having a devastating splitting effect in our lives. And sometimes we'd rather let the relationship go. Sometimes we give up hope, thinking that things can't get better. And sometimes we ask the question, is there hope for restoration when relationships are broken by sin? Is there a reason for hope when relationships are split in two, like two halves of a log that have tumbled to the ground? Is there hope that it can be brought back together? Well, the book of Philemon is a real-life drama that has very practical implications for our daily lives, particularly in this area of strife and struggle. One of the things that I think all of us realize living in a fallen world is this. We all deal with this. We all experience being offended or we all have participated in offending others. It's just part of the lay of the land in a fallen world. So in this real life drama in this true story we find three characters 
One's, one man's name is Paul. He's the author of this letter, as you see in verse 1. He's writing to a friend of his whose name is Philemon. Now, what we know about Philemon from verses 1 to 3 is that Philemon is a somewhat wealthy man because the church in Colossae meets in his home. So he's a rather large establishment for his dwelling place. He is also a man, and this is the twist in the story that from our 21st century perspective is odd and difficult. He's an owner of slaves. Okay? So he is a wealthy man who has what some would call employees, but at some level, uh, slavery in the New Testament era was also a difficult and often brutal thing. He is a slave whose name is Onesimus. Okay, now Onesimus will become the centerpiece of this short letter that Paul is writing. Onesimus is a slave who, according to verse 11, Paul can say he was formerly useless to you. Okay, and then in verse 12, he can say, I am sending him to you. So it, it most surmise something like this. Onesimus is guilty of being a runaway who probably in the process of his departure stole from his master that is so that he could support himself in the city of Rome where he went to seek asylum. Okay, so Onesimus is sought to break away from that household, has wronged his master in this case. So the end result is this. Philemon is the offended party in the story, and Onesimus is the offending party in the story. Okay? And the question is, how does Paul, as an apostle, function in relationship to this story? Okay, what is his part going to be in this story? And here's what you're going to find. The letter is basically Paul's appeal to Philemon, the offended party, to prompt in him forgiveness for the offending party. Okay, and Paul's going to be very clear as you move through the letter that Philemon has wronged, or that Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Okay, and Paul is writing to bring a restoration to this broken relationship. Verse 10 says this. It says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Okay, so that'll be the, the, the overall thrust of the letter is an appeal from the Apostle Paul to Philemon the master to experience a restoration of relationship with his slave Onesimus. Let me quick say this about slavery because for most of us, where we live today in America, the idea of slavery is just utterly reprehensible to us. Okay, we, we understand the kind of slavery that took place in America and Britain, and we are strongly against it, and rightfully so. Okay, slavery in the ancient world, first of all, was not racial slavery like British and American slavery was. Secondly, the treatment of slaves varied tremendously. Because of the economic circumstances of the time, it was sometimes favorable for someone to be categorized in this way. Not always. Sometimes they could be treated as property. But at other times, they could be treated as part of the family. Given total care, a high level of management, they could marry and at times own property. Okay. The other thing that's also true in regards to Roman slavery is this. That it, it was often possible for the owner to view his slave as his personal property. And you're going to see how that comes up a little bit later. That this departure of Onesimus is in fact seen in this case as theft of services and theft perhaps of resources along with the departure. 
Okay, so that's a perspective that's present here. They could save money and often buy their freedom, be emancipated through their work. And the last thought that I wanted to just share with you is that the church, all right, the early Christian church grew up in a setting in which this was normative. Okay, I think it's important that we, as we read this letter, we understand that the church was birthed in a context where this was the norm. Okay, it's not something that began at that time. It's something that was already present in human history. Now, here's the question that comes to mind, though, right? Why, why doesn't Paul, in this letter, call for an abolition of slavery? Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he say to all Christians, you know what? Christians need to rise up, and they need to defeat slavery today. Okay, why wasn't that the case? One writer said this. He said, a new religion advocating freedom of all slaves would in fact be suicidal. Okay, if the church took on a a political tone early on, it would have sounded the death knell for the church. How does God want to defeat slavery and things that, uh, habits and, 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 and patterns that are destructive? How does God want to do it? You know how God wants to do it? He wants to change your life. And then he wants your life to change someone else's life. And then he wants their life to change someone else's life. And as that happens, there is an exponential growth and spread of change. Also, this fact that sudden freedom for all slaves would not necessarily have been the best thing for those that were held in slavery. Because in many cases, the slaves enjoyed the relationship that they had with their owner. What is Paul doing in this letter then? Paul is calling for Christian love, knowing that it will sound the defeat and mistreatment of others in regards to slavery. So while in this letter we don't find a frontal attack on slavery, nor do we find that in the New Testament, what we do find is this. We find the seeds of its final eradication in the gospel of Christ. Okay, and that's something that will become clear when we move into what I think is the third point of what I want to discuss with you this morning. A man named Garland said this. He says, what this letter does is bring slavery into a situation in which the institution could only wilt and die. Okay, so what Paul is teaching basically is going to deprive slavery of its energy, of what drives it. And in that context where slavery is being defeated from the perspective of who a person becomes in Christ... It will have to wilt away and die. The nature of the relationship is what would change. And you move more into an, an employer and employee type of relationship where the slave is no longer or the worker is no longer seen as personal property. But that person is granted dignity. Okay, that's what the gospel in this account ultimately accomplishes. So, moving back to the storyline. What this story is going to emphasize is that life is often hard, that offenses do come, but that Paul's letter to Philemon is meant to inspire hope that broken relationships can be restored, that fractured, broken relationships can be rescued and mended for the glory of God. The main issue of this book then is not slavery, but reconciliation, okay? And so as you read through it, Just try to deal with the the issues of slavery from various perspectives, but realizing that the main thrust of this story 
is not slavery, but the reconciliation of two people who have experienced brokenness in their relationship. So the question I want to put before you this morning and then seek to answer from this text is this. In a broken world, can we be people of hope? In a world where there's brokenness in relationships, is there hope of forgiveness and restoration? Okay? And I want to argue this. I want to argue based upon this passage of Scripture that there is hope for reconciliation when relationships are broken. And I want to give you four times when reconciliation and restoration is likely to occur. Okay, the first one is this from verses 4 through 7. Restoration is likely when the offended party has a selfless perspective. Okay, when the offended party has a selfless perspective. Why don't you notice what Paul says about Philemon. Verses 4 through 7 are kind of, if you will, the, the prelude. 1 to 3 is the greeting of the letter, kind of identifies people in the church and individuals that are important to Paul. Verses 4 through 7 talk about Philemon. Here's what it says. He says, I often thank my God as I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. Okay, so what is the first characteristic of Philemon that emerges from this text? Okay, he's the offended party, but what is he like? Okay, Paul can identify the the fact that Philemon has an active love for a variety of people, including Christ. Okay, so love is a a general characteristic of the life of this man. Verse 6, he says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Okay, so what's Paul saying? He's saying that he wants Philemon in sharing truth about Jesus to grow to appreciate the love that Christ has for him. And as Philemon begins to grasp that love, to fully understand that love, it's going to influence his behavior in a season and in a a circumstance of offense in his life. All right, so what's the thrust? Let the love of Christ inform your heart in times of offense. And when the love of Christ creates in you a selflessness, when it destroys pride, Okay, it will put you in a place where you can become an agent of reconciliation and restoration. I think the thrust of what Paul is saying here is that Christ's selfless love, when it is understood and embraced, prompts our love of others. So the reason we love other people is why? Because God first loved us. What were we? We were the offending party. And God, in His grace, moved in our direction to bring about what? Through the blood of Christ, reconciliation and restoration of a broken relationship. Well, how did that come about? It came about through the selfless behavior of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on Philippians chapter 2, says, the form of a servant. The master became the servant. And what did he do? He selflessly served us by shedding his blood on the cross. Okay, what is Paul saying? He's saying, Philemon, I know this is true of you. You are a loving man. That gives me hope. So as Paul writes, the first thing he can do is say, Philemon, you are known as a man of love. And I know that when I send Onesimus back to you, that your heart is going to be selfless, not prideful. And folks, here's what happens, isn't it? When my heart is pride, when someone offends me, my response is, how dare you? Right? How could you? 
Why did you do that? I, I, I become demanding and condemning and negative. But when the love of Christ is present, what do I want? I want reconciliation. I want restoration of the relationship that is broke, has been broken by sin. Philemon is the offended party in this story. But Paul expects that Philemon's character and the practice of love that he experiences will inform him as to how he should respond to this offense. See, 1 Corinthians 13.5 says this. It says, love does not keep a record of wrongs received. It doesn't proudly store up a list of offenses so that it can drop them on the head of an offender. Instead, it is prone to forgive. One of the observations I want to make about this idea that, that, that Philemon is a selfless, loving man is this. When, when you get into a circumstance of struggle and difficulty, you can't all of a sudden create selfless love. Like you can't just say, okay, I, I'm in a bad situation. I want to be selfless and loving now. Okay? That's not the way it works. This was Philemon's character. Paul could write to him and say, I know this to be true about you. So I'm hopeful that you're going to experience a restoration in this broken relationship. Philemon had clearly been deeply offended, wounded, and experienced thievery. Now, what's the, what's the news of this letter to Philemon? Okay, The news of this letter to Philemon is verse 10. Okay, This is, this is the, uh, the news alert that flashes across the bottom of the screen. Okay, As Philemon's reading the larger letter, here's the news alert, verse 10. And it's just important for us to set this. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now, if you study through the New Testament, you know that Paul regularly refers to people who have come to faith in Christ under his ministry as his spiritual children, as sons and daughters. Okay, so what is Paul saying to Philemon? He's saying to Philemon, remember that slave Onesimus? Yeah, that guy that robbed you and left you? Well, here's a news alert. He's a different man. He's a changed man. Okay? And so Paul's first acknowledging that Philemon is a selfless man, but he needs to know that Philemon has experienced something amazing and fascinating in terms of the grace of God. So the first thing that we see is that forgiveness and restoration is likely when the offended party takes a selfless posture towards the sinner. Secondly, There is hope for restoration when the offended party is willing to forgive. Okay, folks, look, our first response to offense is not usually, you know what, I can't wait for an opportunity to forgive that person. But that's just not, that's just not how we, when when offense comes, it's not like, boy, I just can't wait to have an opportunity to forgive them. No, you know what, what I want is my pound of flesh. I want to get what I, I want to get them back. Okay, that's the natural direction that our flesh goes. When is there hope for restoration? Well, there's no hope for restoration when somebody's seeking a pound of flesh. You can count on it. When something's seeking revenge and vengeance, there's no hope for reconciliation. But there is hope when the offended party, when Philemon comes to a place where he says, you know what, Onesimus, I am willing to forgive you. Now, here's the question. What prompts, what motivates a willing forgiveness. What causes us to say, you know what? I, I'm willing to lay that offense down. I'm willing to let that go and to experience a restoration of this relationship. What prompts that? I think two things in this text prompt that. The first thing is undeserved love. 
Verse 8, here's what happens. Paul says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Okay, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, you know what, Philemon, I could write to you and say, I insist that you forgive Onesimus. He's a changed man. He is truly repentant. Therefore, you must forgive him. That's not the route that Paul takes. Paul acknowledges that he could pull rank on Philemon, but that he refuses to do so. Why? He wants the forgiveness. He wants the restoration that he's encouraging Philemon to to practice. He wants it to flow out of the love of God. Why? Because forgiveness is the natural response of a forgiven human heart to the love of God. It's the natural response that we would desire to seek restoration. So Ephesians 4.32 can say something like this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay, let the forgiveness that you experienced in coming to faith in Christ prompt your forgiveness and love of others. So that forgiveness is not, oh, okay, it's something I, I, okay, if I have to, God, I'll forgive him. No, it's, how could I not? How could I not receive them back? How could I not reconcile the relationship in light of the love and grace that God has shown to me? Okay, so so what's going to compel and prompt a willing forgiveness that gives hope for reconciliation is an acknowledgement of the love of God. 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to. It's an obligation. What is Paul saying? The obligation isn't going to come from Paul saying to Philemon, you must forgive him. I don't care what he says, you must forgive him. No, the obligation, the ought, of restoration, of forgiveness that leads to it, is what? It's the love of God. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Okay, so for someone who is seeking to grasp the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love, when you grasp it, it will free you to willingly forgive people. Not out of duty, not, well, I guess I have to. I've been caught with a bitter heart, therefore I have to. No. No, there's, there's an ought that rises from within when we understand that the love of God that we have experienced is undeserved. The other thing that Paul points to fascinatingly in this story is the providence of God as something that's going to prompt a willing, free, and gracious love. Look at verse 15 and 16. Let's pick up verse 14 just as we read through. Paul says, But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor that you do would be spontaneous and not forced. Okay, this is a thought to me in this text. It's powerful. Paul wants the forgiveness that Philemon is about to express to be willing, to be spontaneous. Okay, a response to to effects, a response to God and his grace, and in this case, his sovereignty. And Paul says, I want it to be spontaneous and not forced. And then he says, perhaps. Okay, he he says, Philemon, think about it in this way. The reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back for good. Meaning, permanently. 
And what is Paul saying? He's giving a nod to the providence of God in this. And there is a, a, what we would call in, in the original language a divine passive here. Perhaps Onesimus, in his wicked decision to deprive you and steal from you, was in fact moved away from you by the sovereign hand of God. Meaning what, what Onesimus meant for harm, God had what? God had intervened and used it for good. What does that do? That humbles our hearts, right? And it prompts a spontaneous and willing love. You see, from a human perspective, what do we do? When we're offended, what we want to think about, what we want to focus on is the human element. And we rule God out of the picture. What is Paul doing? Paul's bringing God back into the story and saying that nothing that happens on planet Earth is outside of the control of God. There's nothing that God cannot use to fulfill his glorious purposes. So perhaps the invisible hand of God was moving through this part of human history and was bringing about a result that will be glorious. Verse 15, he says this, perhaps he was separated from you for a little while that you may have him back for good. Now see, folks, the relationship that Philemon had with Onesimus was a temporary relationship. The relationship that he now has with him as a brother in Christ is what? It's permanent. And now you understand why Paul doesn't argue for the abolition of slavery. He actually is subverting it by pointing to the providence of God. Onesimus went away from you as a piece of property. He has returned to you as a brother in Christ in a permanent relationship. And then verse 16, he says this. You have to love this. He says that you might have him back for good permanently, no longer as a slave, that is as property, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Well, this is fascinating. Okay, Onesimus is going to be coming back because Paul sent him back with a letter. He's coming back not as a slave that ran away who deserves to be judged and destroyed. He's coming back as a brother in a relationship that is permanent. And what is Paul hoping? That when when Philemon sees the providence of God, that he would just stand back and say, oh my God. This slave that ran away is coming back as a man who has been dramatically changed by the power of God. What is Paul doing? Paul's confronting the social and economic order head on by giving dignity to those that were trapped in the class of slaves. What is he doing? He's saying, you know what, Uh, Philemon, Onesimus is better now than a slave. He is no longer simply property. He is your brother in Christ. And what is Paul hoping? He's hoping that that act of God in bringing Onesimus to saving faith would open the eyes of Philemon as a leader in the church to see this man is changed. And he is my brother. This story certainly brings to mind the story of Joseph from Genesis chapter 50, doesn't it? Right? Joseph is sent away by his brother, sold as what? A slave. They meant it for evil, for his destruction. What did God do? 
God used it for good for the saving and sparing of many lives. That is sovereign grace, folks. That is the the providence of God working in the circumstances of your life so that you will look to him and say, oh, what a God. That he would take away someone like Onesimus in rebellion and bring him back in a permanent relationship as a brother. That's what Paul's encouraging Philemon to see. That God had worked in spite of Onesimus' unethical and sinful behavior. Because God is bigger than the sinful behavior. God is bigger than the wounds and sinful actions that affect our lives. And what happens when, when wrong comes, when offense comes, we want to we we rectify it. We want to solve the problem. We want to take it into our own hands and fix it. Pay people back. What does God want us to do? God is saying, no, no, no. Trust me. Trust me. Folks, did God not take the greatest crime of human history and turn it for good? The crucifixion of the perfect son of God. And what did God do? God turned it for good. For the saving of many. For his glory. We become willing to forgive when we see the secret unseen hand of God. God's deep love and exhaustive providence free us to forgive. It causes us, it encourages us to leave the difficult circumstance in his capable hands because he causes all things to work together for good. He is that provident, he is that sovereign, exhaustively, so that he can take an act of theft and departure and turn it ultimately to be for his glory. So when you're tempted to complain, Because you don't understand how the circumstance could work for good. Can I encourage you to do this? Trust and obey a sovereign God. Restore the person who was offended. All right. See the relationship restored. See the brokenness healed. As you become a willing agent of God. Prompted by his love and understanding his providence. There is also hope for restoration. When the offender, the offending party, repents. Okay, there's hope for change when the, when the offending party repents. What is repentance? Okay, repentance is this. In my life, I'm walking in this direction, away from God's will and purpose. The Spirit of God begins to work in my life. He prompts me to experience change and to seek Him. I turn and I go back towards God. It is, it, is, it is a change of direction. It is a change of heart that yields to a life that is now moving in a different direction. That is repentance. And what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text, he is going to argue that, that Onesimus has experienced a heart change. How do we know that? Because look at verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. Okay? Now what's that say? It says that Paul is recognizing that the departure of Onesimus from Philemon was in fact an act that was immoral. It was wrong. It was an act of theft, given the context of that time. Okay? What is Onesimus doing? Onesimus is coming back to you. So what happened? Paul, somehow in the providence of God, meets Onesimus in Rome. Turns out that Paul had a personal relationship with his master. Paul begins to evangelize Onesimus. Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul begins to share with him that what you've done is wrong. Understandable, but still wrong. 
Okay, so in verse 12, what can Paul say? Onesimus is coming back to you. All right, he's returning. He has experienced a repentance. That repentance on the part of Onesimus makes restoration in the relationship possible and likely. Okay? So sometimes in circumstances, we are either the offended or the offending party. When you're the offending party, what does God want you to do? God wants you to stop walking in the wrong direction of offense, turn and move back towards the person that you've offended in hopes of restoration. That turn does what? That turn makes reconciliation possible. Okay, apart from that repentance, apart from that turn, reconciliation is not possible. Now, how do we know that, that, that Onesimus is truly turned and changed? Well, if you look at verse 10, it says, Paul can say, he is my son. And in verse 11, he can say, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Okay, so the one who in his departure became unworthy is now worthy. He's experienced a change. He's become a son. He's a believer, but he is also now useful. In this turn, I think it's important that we say this. I think it's important that we say that our turn must not be characterized by excuses. Okay? And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes we might say to our, our mate or to our children or a friend, we might say, I know I got angry and I apologize, but, okay, and then what are we going to do? We're going to justify our disobedience, which means that our repentance is not genuine repentance, okay? I apologize for getting angry, but I wouldn't have gotten angry if you hadn't said X, Y, and Z, okay? Is that repentance? Okay, well, the answer is No. That's an excuse, okay? It's not a confession. And the only way that we can really experience restoration is when there is true repentance and a true confession, a true owning of the wrong that we have done. Only genuine change from the heart will lead you to the repentance that is required for a reconciled relationship. Onesimus has not experienced a change of behavior. Okay, it's not simply that he was walking away from Colossae towards Rome, and now he's turned and he's walking from Rome back towards the city of Colossae where his master lives. That's not what happened. What Paul's talking about is a, is a radical heart change. And see, that's what repentance does. Repentance always yields to a heart change, and the result of that heart change is now what? Onesimus is coming back to you, Philemon. And what is Paul going to do? He's going to act as an agent of restoration. He's going, to, he's going to jump in the middle of this situation and encourage two brothers in Christ to be reconciled, to have their broken relationship healed and restored because that's what will glorify God. That raises a question though, doesn't it? What do you do in a circumstance when repentance is not present? When the person who has offended you doesn't really change. What do you do? Okay? I think it's Ken Sanda that, that breaks this down in his book called Peacemaker by saying this. He says, there are two kinds of forgiveness. One is attitudinal and one is transactional. Okay? Attitudinal means that I have an attitude in my heart 
that is an unconditional commitment to God that I will not strive, I will not dwell on this incident, uh, that I will have an attitude of love, and that I will not seek vengeance. What is that saying? I am ready to forgive when genuine repentance is present. Okay? It's an attitude that says to people, I love you, and when you repent, I will genuinely and freely forgive you. In this story, what happens? Onesimus experiences a genuine conversion, a genuine change, a genuine repentance that is evidenced by what? A return back to his master. Okay? Transactional forgiveness is this. It is once the offender repents, it is a commitment not to bring up the situation again, or to use it against them. It, it, it kind of builds off of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sin. That's a transaction that takes place when you and I go to God in honesty and genuineness of heart and say, God, please forgive me. What I did was wrong. No excuses. Okay? Then there can be this transaction of forgiveness. Okay, the last thought I want to share with you this morning is that there is hope for restoration when God's extravagant grace is appreciated and applied. Okay, when God's extravagant grace is appreciated and applied. Now, the hint at this appreciation of extravagant grace or the encouragement in this text to appreciate extravagant grace is found in verse 19. Paul says, I am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Now, this is fascinating. Okay, what does Paul mean by that when he says to Philemon, you owe me your very self? Okay, I, I, think, I think what Paul is saying is something like this. I brought you to Christ. And, and because you're in Christ, I can expect that when Philemon returns, you will embrace him and welcome him. So the motivation that underlies verses 17 through 19 is what? Paul had been the instrument of Philemon coming to faith in Christ. He was the means through which the gospel was channeled to Philemon. And for that reason, in verse 17, Paul can say this. So if you consider me a partner, a fellow worker, welcome him when he returns as you would welcome me. Okay, that's fascinating, isn't it? What has Paul just done? Paul has just equated the runaway slave with who? With himself. Philemon, <clears throat> when Onesimus returns, treat him like you would treat me. What is that again? Once again, it's subverting the attitude of slavery that was present in the Roman world. Okay, he's, just, he's undermining, undermining, undermining. Treat that slave like you would treat me. Here's what's fascinating. This is a public letter. The normal treatment for a slave who had run away was that they would be beaten, sometimes killed. Paul is saying to Philemon in front of the whole church, it's a letter that goes to Philemon and to the church that meets in his house, which is to do what? Ramps things up. Holds Philemon accountable for his behavior before and in the body of Christ. Okay? And so what Paul is saying to him is, forgive him, receive him, give him equal status, literally take the slave and make him family. Because that's what he is in Christ. Folks, that's how radical the extravagant grace of God is. 
It takes a rebel, runaway slave, and brings him into the church of God and makes him part of a new family. That obviously dramatically changes things. And the only thing that would prompt that is the extravagant grace of God that Philemon already knows. Verse 18, Paul goes a step further. He says, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, and that's a presumed condition here, okay? Certainly, he has wronged him. Financially, he has wronged him in terms of his personal departure, theft of service. That happened. What does Paul say? If he owes you anything, charge it to me. I am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Now, what is Paul doing? Paul is is not saying, you know what, Philemon, let bygones be bygones. Now, it's just, it's water under the bridge. Philemon, just bury the hatchet. That's not what he's doing. What is he doing? And true forgiveness is acknowledgement that a debt has been incurred and that someone needs to pay that debt. Does that sound familiar? In the gospel of Christ, what happened? The wages of my sin is death. That's the debt that I owe to God. In his loving grace, Jesus Christ came and bore my sin on the cross. What did God do? God charged it to his account. The book of Colossians says that God took the handwriting, the list of indictments that was against us, and in Jesus, he nailed it to the cross and paid the price of my sin. What what is Paul doing? He's acting like Christ. He's making restoration possible. By what? First reminding Philemon that he had come to know this grace of God in Christ through Paul's ministry. And then what is Paul doing? He's stepping in and saying, I will act in the place of Christ. If Onesimus has wronged you financially, charge it to my account. I will pay that debt. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Folks, I will not become a forgiving person who pursues restoration and reconciliation until I understand what Christ has done for me. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because we are forgiven. That that forgiveness of God, appropriately understood, what does it do? It magnifies extravagant grace. Amazing grace. And when you are amazed by the grace of God, you will practice the grace of God. And when you're not amazed by it, you will be a person of payback. So Paul, in strong terms, in a sense, leverages Philemon based on what he has received, this extravagant grace that is revealed to us on the cross where Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took what I deserved. And in salvation, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to my account and God accepts me in the beloved. So in the church, how does it look? In the church, here's how it looks. Our treatment of others is transformed by the grace that we have received from God in Christ. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Philemon, I'm confident you'll do this. Why? Well, because of what he said in verses 3 and 4, and because of what he said in verses 7 through 9. But Paul was confident Philemon's going to do the right thing. And then here's what he says. And Philemon, I know you you will go beyond what I request of you. You'll do even more. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's the kind of grace and love that we express to people that offend. Why? Because we we have been overwhelmed by and overcome by the love of God in Christ. And when we are overwhelmed by that and deeply affected by that, we become people who want to practice it. When the gospel moves you, 
You will go beyond minimums. Okay? And you know what a lot of times we do? In situations of restoration or, or, or forgiveness where there's a need for reconciliation and restoration, we tend to be people that do the minimum. Okay, we'll verbalize forgiveness, but we won't, we won't actually act that forgiveness out. We'll talk about reconciliation, but we won't go to the ends of restoration. God didn't simply save you and abandon you. He saved you and drew you into his family, a permanent relationship. You were a slave in sin. Through the blood of Christ, he purchased your freedom and has brought you into a glorious relationship of love. And when you appreciate, when you, when you comprehend that extravagant grace, it will transform your life. Can I ask you this morning this question? And it's really the question that Paul asked at the Lord's table. When he says, let each one examine themselves. Would you examine yourself this morning and ask this question? Who is it that God wants me to forgive? What unresolved issue, what offense, what open wound does God desire to heal? And when you do it, don't act out of obligation, duty. Do it as someone who has been transformed by the love of Christ, who is conscious of their forgiveness that has been achieved through the blood of of Jesus. That's what the Lord's table says to us today. It is by the gracious death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That I am restored into a relationship with God. By amazing extravagant grace. And if God so loved us. Then we ought to. We have an obligation that arises not out of demand. But out of love. To forgive each other. And that's what God wants us to do by his grace and for his glory. Let's bow our heads together as we go to the Lord's table.